Hi, welcome back to the second episode of The Lost Project, where we help students and individuals discover their passion to lead outside the student territory. Today, I'm joined with the founder of Sprackle, Coy White, and he's originally from Florida, and I believe he's on his way to New York City right now. Um, he took his first gap year and he's on to taking his second gap year, but he's an extremely talented videographer and storyteller, and I'm so glad to have him here today. Welcome, Koi. Hi. Welcome. Yeah, that makes me sound so much more official than I feel. <laughs> That's exactly who you are. Um, I guess we'll just go ahead and jump straight into it. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what Sprackle is exactly? So, yeah, so Sprackle, it's, it's been sort of like an ever-evolving thing trying to explain it because one of those things that it's like everyone and their brother tries to make another social media, but like a lot of them try to make the next existing social media, like the next Facebook or the next Instagram. Right. We're building like, basically there used to be forums a lot for action sports. Mm-hmm. It's being like BMX, skateboarding, free running, stuff like that. Like they would have forums for it, but then forums didn't really pivot with the whole phone revolution. So they stay hard to use. So people kind of wind off of them. And now the entire community is like just fragmented and disarray and like the best chance you have of finding people is like group chats and things like that. And so we're sort of filling back in that void, but with a much easier to use platform and basically rebuilding a home for action sport athletes. Very nice. And how did you get this idea to start this business? Uh, honestly, I, I kind of wish it already existed. It's a little annoying to have to build it to make it exist, but I, was, uh, I took a trip to the UK last year, like as just sort of, because my gap year wasn't the very typical, like go see 50 countries and whatever sort of gap year. It was, uh, I used it to practice for auditions and music. And, um, but at the end of it, I was like, I'm, I'm going to do one cool thing mm-hmm. this entire year. So I booked a trip to the UK uh, for two weeks to go mountain bike riding, basically. And literally from even before I booked the tickets, it was like the whole thing was just a logistical nightmare. Um, like everything from, finding out how to pack a bike took like eight hours of looking through like hidden policies and pages that were like listed everywhere on the website because no one ever used them right um to the moment that i got in london and i was like uh, i had like a small injury so i wanted to film some riders or athletes for the documentary for the trip and um i couldn't find anyone like i could not find skateboarders free runners bikers of any sort in london and london had a few world famous skate parks and then so like obviously they're there <clears throat> and um i asked my friends in the uk i was like do you guys know anyone in london and none of them knew anyone and so that was like sort of the first inkling and then like that whole trip sort of set little like ideas mm-hmm. and one of them was spot searching so i write a style called street trials and street insinuating that you do it in like urban places right instead of going to a track or going to jumps or like a park for it um i just ride on like ledges and rails stairs and things like that so you always have like this eye out for spots as a whole but you never know where they are before you find them and usually you forget where they are after you find them right so it's it's just solved me a whole bunch of issues. Like the first version, which is should be in beta in about a week and a half, is going to be just connecting people again, like bringing someone, like or just bringing the whole community to a centralized umbrella where they can all start to find each other again, and um, and then we'll start rolling out tools for them to use to make the sport easier to do. 
So I guess it's the purpose of Sprackle to make BMX in that quarter um, sporting atmosphere more accessible so that people know what it's all about and for those who are trying to get into it or what is the overall goal? Just to, I would say to build a home for all of the athletes online because oh, they don't really have one. Right. Instagram and Facebook are the closest things we have, but they don't really work in the ways that we need them to because the ways that we would need a social media to work, it doesn't like make any sense for normal people. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I mean like technology is changing nowadays. I know there's like a whole bunch of stuff going around about like how should social media be used and just for even like older generations who aren't necessarily millennials trying to understand the whole purpose behind social media at this stage. Yeah, one thing that like I'm excited about with Sprackle is that we're not monetizing the ad model. Mm-hmm. so simplifies everything both from business development standpoint as well as the user standpoint so we don't have to um, raise money to make an algorithm feed because the only reason any other social media has those is to fill like enough attention advertisers that are paying the company to exist we're doing affiliate marketing so we don't have to really like our users are our users it's not like our users and then our hidden users which are really like the more important ones right usually the advertisers so that's pretty exciting so I guess with that, um, I realized that Sprackle, it's branded under the whole idea of cashless production. Could you talk a little bit more about what that means exactly? So they're kind of, they're pretty independent, but I'm going to definitely use the, like whatever personal branding comes from cashless productions to funnel into Sprackle. Because uh, if you've seen the Sprackle Instagram, there's only two posts, but I'm going to try to build a narrative of like the dynamics behind the company um, and me around that instead of just like reposting BMX clips and stuff. Right. So that way people are more invested in the people behind the app than the app itself. And so mm-hmm. they'll follow if there has to be a big pivot or something. But cashless productions is, um, it's sort of like an opportunity engine for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason why it's called cashless productions, well, at least now I say the reason why it's called that is because I only do projects, um, obviously I do like blogs and stuff, but if I do like a real like event coverage or like a wedding or something else, I'll only do those projects if they're... Absolutely. And I guess, could you discuss a little bit about your background and how you got into videography and just all this creative design aspect that you're currently doing with Sprackle? Yeah, that's a a funny story. Um, (laughs) So I used to be like the hallmark, like uncool, nerdy, fluffy Asian kid in the Southern high school, middle school, and elementary school. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I got into remote control cars and not like, the ones at Walmart and stuff, but these are like literally one eighth scale or one tenth scale, like scaled down fully complex. Like they have differentials that some of them have nitromethane engines that are like combustion engines, but they're like big. Tiny, yeah. Yeah, and so I got into that and I got like, there was, I guess it's because I couldn't drive a real car yet. (laughs) I was like really interested in making videos that made it look like a real car because I just to see because you don't see a real car like fly off a jump and do a backflip but like you could do that with these remote control cars so i started making these hilariously like just they didn't make any sense at all but they'd be like montages of what we call bashing and it was basically just like going and just going ham with these remote control cars. i'd put it like slow motion to dubstep at like 240p resolution and it was like it was the worst thing ever but that, um, I want to say this started when I was like 11 or 12, something like that, probably about 11. 
<laughs> and that slowly progressed into like I met a friend in my town that did BMX, and so I like made a couple of fun biking videos for him, and then that sort of evolved into like doing my first like action sequence short film thing, which is like pretty bad, but I was I'm still kind of proud of it for being my first one. Right, and that happened in tenth grade when I was fifteen, I think. And then from there, it just sort of like picked up and just progressed a little more. And then I started looking at YouTube channels like Film Riot and things like that and finding tutorials. And I was actually go into film because um, I, I, my major was trombone performance this past year. Right. And um, from like ninth grade to about the end of 10th grade, I didn't know if I wanted to do trombone performance or film. Mm-hmm. I was going to try and double major at Florida State and those two things, but then I found out a school like just doesn't allow you to. <laughs> you just like have no faith that anyone could actually <laughs> major in those right. Um So that didn't happen and I had to pick one, so I went with music because film's more like academic in a way where like once you learn a skill, you kind of have it and you don't have to woodshed to keep it up. Right. To get any fulfillment out of classical music, like you, you got to be on your game all the time. Gotcha. So, that one option let me do both. And then I guess with film production and all of that, is that something that you independently learned or did you have to take classes? Or how did you go about trying to learn it? I, um, it was pretty much all YouTube tutorials and Google and, and stuff like that. I took one TV production class in high school, but mm-hmm. basically because I wanted to use their Macs. <laughs> and because I had like a really awful computer at the time. And um, so I did that and I met a couple good friends out of that class, one of which I like still consult for advice on editing. Uh-huh. And that's pretty much it. Like I haven't, like I have Skillshare, but I haven't looked up any stories on that. It's like mostly just very specific searches on YouTube. Right. I mean, I think that's such a great thing about, I guess, technology in general now for us. Like you can learn anything online. It's so easily accessible. And I feel like there's a lot of re- free resources that are out there for anyone yeah. that is trying to start, like, I guess, any career. Yeah, no, I mean, startup is a perfect example. Yeah. <laughs> there's literally a 20 lecture Stanford course on YouTube that's public. Uh-huh. And it's like Sam Altman who runs Y Combinator. Um, and they have lectures from like Peter Thiel, co-founder of PayPal, like, um, Reed Hoffman, who's also like at LinkedIn and PayPal, like just, and it's free and it's on YouTube and it's a whole course. Like, I love the advantage of it. Yeah. And I know, so like I've watched (laughs) probably a lot of your videos just like on Instagram, scrolling through it and also like going through cashless production. I know we were talking about this a little bit, but I think a common conception of going into like the film or media industry is like you need these high quality equipment to be able to produce something like amazing you know but I guess what would what's your take on the type of equipment that you use how did you start I um so I was kind of funny because I I used to be obsessed with frame rate like so when I was doing the remote control car stuff the way you look more like real cars was get a slow mo scale car moving at like quarter speed kind of looks like it has the weight of a, a real car so I used to just be obsessed with finding cheap cameras with stupid high frame rates. <laughs> My first like camera, if you could call it that, was a Fujifilm HS10. Uh-huh. It looks like a DSLR, but it didn't have a removable lens. So like dust got under the lens and then you couldn't do anything about it. So it was just always in the shot. Like <laughs> <laughs> that vintage look. <laughs> yeah, I think you like I got the camera for like two hundred and twenty dollars or something, used it for three years and 
I remember having this dream that one day, like my quantification of having made it in the world was to have a camera with manual focus because I was so tired of using it. Because all I wanted to do was uh, this effect called just racking focus, which is if you've ever seen like the focal point move down on like fence or something like that, it, like the blur moves, mm -hmm. that's racking focus. And I was like, I wanted to, that's, if I can do that one day, I've made it. And like literally any $300 camera can do that. And so, <laughs> I got, um, I graduated to a Canon T4i, which is basically just like a, you get them on eBay now for like 400 bucks and it's, a, it's just a normal DSLR. And it like, it's a rather old camera as far as tech is concerned, but mm. still holds its own. Like you'd have no problem starting out with that. I think the yeah. biggest conception that people have is that they need to get really good cameras in the beginning, but in reality, like what gives you the look is the lenses. Like if you and you if you invest in lenses, like they hold their value because yeah. like glass doesn't get particularly innovated all that often. <laughs> Whereas like these camera bodies become outdated in three years. Um, I don't know, but like phones are so good now, and it's, it's sort of what I, I, what was the point I was trying to make? What was the question again? <laughs> um, just like the idea of how a lot of people think that. Essentially, you need high-quality camera equipment to be able to right. produce such great content. Yeah, I mean, my everything that I've made recently has been done on a GH4. And a GH4 was a really great camera when it came out, but now you're under a thousand dollars. And like, I've used it for wedding shoots that have been like to professional level. I filmed like a trailer for a parody short film that I did that people were like. Did you shoot this on? I was like, the GH4, but like angles and getting the right lenses. Right. It's a lot less about the equipment than a lot of people think. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's something that's so easy to get into and be like maximizing. Because we live in like the age of optimization. So you feel compelled to optimize everything as much as possible. Right. Even though optimizing some things is far less return on investment than optimizing other mm -hmm. actual skills and eyes and references versus equipment <laughs> right yeah and i mean like i actually okay so i actually backstory i met koi on linkedin when he first started and we were both kind of in that same or at least for me i was like okay i want to start creating video content i mean koi's already been like creating videos and all that so he was a pro <laughs> but uh, <laughs> i guess like right now i feel like a big sentiment with video creation or just storytelling is like people want to know who people are more personally in that personal branding aspect versus like, I guess the high quality in terms of framework and all of that. How do you feel about that? It's, um, I think they both have their place. Like YouTube vlogs, uh, if the last video that I made that like a lot of people seem to like, it was a really weird thing for me because I've never like put myself out there. Like I've certainly never made a video that looks or feels or sounds like that. Right. It was all about the importance of like vloggers and how important they can be to people that don't have the same surroundings as someone like Casey Neistat or Gary Vaynerchuk or whoever else. Um, because when you can like immerse yourself in the world and the daily life of a vlogger, that's like getting stuff done. Mm -hmm. You suddenly sort of start to expand your horizons. Whereas if you're trapped in like your small town of 20,000 people, you're your knowledge of what the greatest echelon of excellence is in the world is like getting a 4.0. Like, yeah, there's so much like you're more. Not really, 
yeah, you're not going to be too ambitious. So like the escapism of being able to look at these people that are doing so much more, despite being over a thousand miles away from that mecca of productivity that they might live in or them personally. Um, I think that's really important. But at the same time, like the art of filmmaking, I think the, my biggest gripe with YouTube in general is the algorithm sort of necessitated that faster turnaround time videos were prioritized because that makes sense for the advertising model. Mm -hmm. There used to be so many cool channels like Corridor Digital and Freddie Wong videos and like VFX artists that would post on YouTube and their videos are like objectively better. Right. But I mean, it takes two weeks to make a five minute video for some of them and you're never going to make any money off the advertisement stuff and like sponsorship deals are never going to pay you mm -hmm. that much. So they sort of like waned off of YouTube and they like now do, I think a lot like they still do youtube videos but i think they're doing a lot more like client work to supplement right and um so i think like i definitely recognize the place that exists and the importance of this new sort of vlog style content that's coming out mm -hmm. and lights into people's more personal lives but i at the same time long for a bit of return to form with the actual artistic aspect of when you can control every shot and like what is the, like what is the best thing someone can make if they're not trying to make seven videos a week right yeah and i mean even just on linkedin because i started getting more active on that like i noticed a huge surge in video content and it's kind of just been like a very vlog like style and then when i came across your video i was just like holy like <laughs> like one editing is off the charts and all of that but there was just a whole new aspect of storytelling that you brought to it and i'm like this guy koi white he's gonna break the sound waves of <laughs> linkedin and just change change the platform entirely but yeah, I love that you touched on, um, so I know your recent project that you did just release was The True Value of Escapism. And I know we touched a little bit about it, um, just talking privately about how you were having this crazy idea at like some absurd time and yeah. you didn't sleep and you're like, let me just go for this. But with that, could you tell me kind of your thought process of how you create your storyboard when you're making these creative videos and what kind of goes on in your mind doing that. So that's an interesting thing because the what I it's it's flattering that you say that because I'm notoriously really awful constructing stories. Um, <laughs> the thing that's weird with me is like I'm very good at abstract storytelling. So like I make a montage of some sort to a song that's completely random with a whole repository of shots that really have nothing to do with each other. Like where I think my ability lies is like making unrelated shots feel like a natural progression in some way. But then if you actually give me like like my documentary from last year's trip, for instance, it's past a year overdue because like I've stared at that timeline and I have like two weeks of footage that's like 900 gigs or something. Mm -hmm. Timeline. And what ended up happening was I just kept making montages interrupted like by extensive narration. And I was like, this can't go on for 40 minutes. Like this is really, so <laughs> try to learn story or three act story structure and like implement that in the story of this documentary thing. And it's just, it's so hard for me. And I've never done storyboarding. I think actually funny, funny enough, my TV production teacher always was annoyed at me because I never did brainstorming or storyboarding. <laughs> Um, the closest that I've ever been is I think for that last video that I did and I basically used Evernote to write out the whole script. <clears throat> I'll just say the timeline for the sake of it on here. But so I was riding, I went to ride my bike at like 9.30 p.m. because I picked something on it, was super excited. 9.45 it started raining. So at 9.50 I'm like turning around in the town to ride up this 
godforsaken hill <laughs> apartment. And then it starts like raining a little harder and I'm looking at like one way to take home that's like kind of sketchy and then one way to take home that's not sketchy. Right. And as I'm like moving over to the safer way to ride, I had this idea for like the first idea for this video. And I was listening to this song in SoundCloud and I was like, that's, that'd be interesting to like pick up this one specific shot. I don't know what I'd use it for it. And then I sort of kind of kept stewing on it. Got back home, it's around 10, 10.05 or something. And then I listened to the song again. I was like, huh. And then I just started writing this script and I never write scripts ever. It was a weird <laughs> in the world. And I wrote from 10 to 12. And then from 12 to five, I was standing in the rain trying to shoot, <laughs> shoot. And then from five to seven, I was editing the first cut. And by eight, I uh, sent it to those three friends that I tagged on LinkedIn. And by 10 o'clock that night, I'd uploaded it to YouTube. And that is like the most insane turnaround time that I've ever had. And like for a video that is like not even within the ballpark of anything I've ever done before. Right. So yeah, that, that whole experience was really crazy. Um, but luckily the camera still works. <laughs> it was right, so... Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> The mic jack like has some corrosion and I was like, oh God. <laughs> yeah. Revived all as well. And I guess just with that, where do you find your inspiration and also the motivation to keep making these productions, especially like you said, you're not doing this for the money. It's something that you obviously enjoy, but also pushing out those eight hour work days of, oh, <laughs> let me do this, you know? <laughs> let me just try this video for a 24 hour cycle. <laughs> um, and so usually it's music. So usually if I'm listening to a song, I start seeing shots. I would call myself more of like a cinematographer or a DP than a director or writer or like a, a real filmmaker because I'm much better at sort of taking an existing story and figuring out how to best make it like look and sound. Mm -hmm. like all the nuances to put in it or like subtle movements to like augment certain symbolisms or things like that. Like, But as far as writing a story, I. I really suck at it a lot, but um, so with those like, usually what happens, I'll just be listening to SoundCloud and or like an indie compilation on YouTube because I usually listen to undiscovered songs. Uh -huh. Like a lot of really crappy songs until I find gems because usually those gems are like under a thousand plays and the people that made those songs will like do anything to have you use it in anything. Right and use it for commercial stuff or monetization, and that's how I find music for videos. And also, no one's ever heard it before. Um, and so usually what happens is I'm on like SoundCloud or something like that, and I'll be either writing or driving or listening to it in my apartment, and I'll just start like kind of imagining shots, either, either like the construction of shots that I already know I have or new shots, like, oh, that'd be cool. Mm -hmm. um, usually that sort of stems into stuff, like the, the UK documentary started as like, I was just gonna film a biking video. It was just gonna be um, a piece of like, just everyone doing writing and tricks and stuff like that, like a normal BMX video. But I was listening to one song and I was like, oh, that'd be really cool for like a like seven minute overview of the trip was. And then I was listening to another song, I was like, ah, oh, that'd be really cool for like an introduction if this whole thing was gonna be, and then now it's like a feature, so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it definitely paid off. It made it full circle back around, so that's great. Yeah, and as far as other people, like, usually if they have something that's really interesting, um, like, I don't, if it's something that I am not comfortable with or something that I don't feel confident that I'd be able to do a good job on, like, I don't approach people for that. Mm -hmm. uh, but if it's something that I'm like, holy crap, I could offer a lot to this, like, 
listen to some of my ideas and I'll, I'll try a lot to reach out to people. Great. Make their projects be a thing. Cool. And I mean, so obviously you're starting Sprackle and it's essentially a startup and you have to deal with all sorts of different aspects that I'm sure you probably didn't initially think about. But uh, <laughs> what are some of like the biggest challenges that you're facing trying to start this whole process and how are you working through those things? Um, one of the original ones was I... Like we live in an age where you can find any answer to a question you have. What I found was the hardest part about starting a startup is like, you don't know what questions to ask. And there's no repository for like what questions, like you can't Google. What questions do I ask? (laughs) You can't Google an exhaustive list of like, what do I need to know for my action sport tech startup? That doesn't like, article on that. So you kind of wander in the dark and just by necessity make a lot of mistakes. And so like that leads you to not necessarily answers all the time, but at least like do that. And there's this other thing you might need to learn about. And so it'll direct you to something to learn. But I mean, I've read more books in the past year and this, this is not a, a very high bar to surpass, but in the past year, I've easily read more books than I did from like kindergarten to graduation from high school. Right. Audible is a great thing, <laughs> but it's like all application specific stuff. Like I, I've never read like a novel for fun, but I've read like five or six business practical books mm-hmm. last year. Um, and besides that, like something that I'm getting into now is like interpersonal dynamics with interpersonal professional dynamics. So like um, last night I was talking to the lead developer, Will, about like co-founding and stuff and we want to do a co-founding thing, but that's like a really dangerous thing because once you sort of set that equity split, like a lot of people um, they'll do like an even split. So like, mm-hmm. nice to meet you. Let's do 50-50 split handshake, forget about it. And then they become deadlocked like six months down the road when they get investors and they're like, and then a lot of people, it's just not something that people think about. And it's also really, really touchy to talk about. Right. Money like can get involved. Yeah. And I mean, right now I'm literally CEO of a stack of papers that tells me I'm CEO of a stack of papers. So it's, there's not a lot of stakes involved, but it's still like that sort of thing. And luckily, Will is like awesome to work with, and we've stayed like I'd say like 100% productive in our discussions. But it's just one of those things that like neither of us have done it before, and so um, we're reaching out to like three different startup law firms to get consulting on like what what do you think our equity split should be? Because it's just like one of those really ambiguous things to quantify how much work each person is going to be doing in the future. Right with the consideration of what you've done in the past, so. And I guess just with that, can you just remind us how old you are? <laughs> Turn 20. <laughs> okay, yeah, see like, that's crazy to think. Like, I guess essentially once someone has an idea, if you can go full run with it, like no matter what age you are, there's so many young entrepreneurs and innovators that are out there. And I guess with that, um, for anyone who might be trying to start their own business, now that you've kind of got a little bit more in depth with the process, obviously it's still moving forward, but what advice could you give to someone who would be in that career path trying to start innovating something? I would say like, just try to stay as objective as possible and everything. Like I think a trap for people right now is the cool factor of like being a tech entrepreneur. Right. 
And there's like, there's two sides you can fall on. So there's the like super infatuated with the idea of like calling yourself CEO of a startup mm -hmm. side where it's like, I would never be able to do that. Like no one around me is doing that. So it must be stupid or it must be really, really impractical. And you kind of have to, if you're on either side of that, gravitate somewhere a little more towards the middle because if you're super infatuated with the like romantic idea mm -hmm. of whatever, like calling yourself CEO or like business trips or materialistic rewards, it's probably not going to be a very good idea. Like the way mine came about was something that's called a user innovation. It is like, I am the end user of my own products. And the reason why it's being built is because I had hoped that it already existed. Like, right. If a year ago I had found an app that already existed and I was like, sweet, problem solved. I wouldn't even be here, but I didn't. So like, I'm just like one of those hard-headed people that's like, I guess, <laughs> I guess I'll just build it, fine. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's the other side, which I was more on, which is like, uh, there's gotta be a reason why like no one's built it. There's like, this must be really impractical or like, I bet other people have thought of this and I'm just like really stupid for thinking it's a good idea. And you have to sort of come like up from that one because then you might have an awesome idea, but never know you didn't pursue it. And you would never have regret in that situation because your like belief system is so set in the fact that it wasn't worth pursuing. Right. But it's one of those things that like you should at least evaluate or evaluate it like from an objective standpoint. So last year I took three months before I decided that it was worth picking a name. Mm -hmm. three months trying to figure out like am I just missing something like where does this exist and looking for every app that was possibly what I thought I was looking right. for and then like alright why don't they exist like looking for every possible way I could fail that was like not fluke based but like every logistical reason that this room was off a cliff somewhere um, and then after three months I couldn't find enough reason so I was like I guess it's time to pick a name so I picked a name and then from there to April, I was trying to learn enough to like attract the attention of a developer. Um, yeah, no, it's just like make sure your intentions are good. Right. Like make sure they're not like snuffed out. Make sure that you're giving them a chance and mm -hmm. make sure that you're not blowing them up too much because that could lead you in hot water too. Yeah. I think definitely just going into the whole startup business, doing it right is difficult, but trying to keep consistent with it and just making sure that it is something that you definitely want and aligns with your morals and your passions and all of that. Yeah. And there's, there's a, like one of the hardest things is when you come up with these like giant plans and you realize where they are to develop and you're like, oh, that's why like these companies, thousands of developers are working all the time. So we get right. Big. And then whittling it down to like a minimum viable product that you can release. But then once you're in the like in the weeds making that first product, like don't forget about all your grandiose plans because that's sort of like the vision for what it can be one day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's just like the whole thing. Every aspect is a balancing act of some sort. Right. It's one of those things that you're never going to be perfectly balanced, but you can at least find your like tolerance where you can adjust and sort of stay around the middle. Mm -hmm. There's no place where it'll just set. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like startup business, everything is just constantly changing and you never really know what exactly to expect. So you just have to be flexible, I guess, with it. Yeah. And keep yourself within like certain 
certain ranges. Right. And I guess so moving forward, what's the next big steps for Sprackle within, let's say, the next two or three years? Oh, <laughs> I'm just I don't know if you thought about that part yet, but... Yeah, so um, in about a week, we're looking at a beta. So we're going to launch a beta for about two weeks because it's a, a really limited feature set. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm assembling a focus group for that. Like, that's actually one of the things that I have to do today. And then we're going to run that for two weeks, do a soft launch. Um, well, like basically a silent launch and just see like what network effects can bring us in that first five or so days. Mm-hmm. Weekends when like kids are out of school and stuff and they actually have time to try this out and use it, then we'll maybe, you know, make some push to like get, or, like tell your friends about this or something. Right. Um, but the thing about it is like, Sprackle's kind of weird because without the whole hemorrhage money until you place ads on the platform model, like yeah. we don't have to raise investment. So like I haven't made an investment thesis, well, at least I don't know the definition of one, so I don't think I've made one. <laughs> Maybe, but yeah. like, yeah, but I'm not like pursuing VC or, or anything like that or angels because um, since it's monetized through solving another pain point of the same user base, like it could be profitable from day one or at least somewhat sustain itself and break even. Right. Because a lot of what happens is like, one of the things that I found out when I was trying to flesh out why it hadn't already been made is that like a lot of people that make, for instance, the spot search thing, the geotagging, like mapping service for where you hide, um, were like single developers who were athletes in the sport. And they were like, this would be really useful. So they'd make the app and they'd launch it. And it would be sort of like putzing around in the app store. Maybe a couple hundred people locally would get it, maybe a couple thousand. But then the moment that it takes off, it becomes too expensive because they don't have a business model. They just made the app. So they have to kill it from the app store. So what you would see is all these spot search, ad, or spot search apps like popping up and dying on the app store, sort of revolving bases. Um, and their best solution was ads, but like banner ads don't get you anything. So right. people just kind of click away. Yeah, and we found out that like buying equipment like pedals, tubes, tires, and, and things like that is another pain point for our users. So adding more value to monetize. Right. Because of that, like, it's kind of weird to make plans because, like, we have to plan around, like, making a runway for our investment because we don't really necessarily need an investment. We're like, trying to think of ways, um, like, at what if someone wanted to invest, like, what strategic reason would we use that investment for? Mm-hmm. And we're trying to flesh that stuff out, but for now, it's just like, try to grow and don't die. <laughs> I guess. Right. Yeah. The exit plan is like somewhere around five to seven years. Um, the ideas of companies I would be interested in buying something like this, but but for the next couple of years, it's it's one of those things that like planning is everything, but plans are useless, sort of thing. Right. You need to actually put action to it and get something to start the ball rolling. Yeah, and like if you make a plan in the beginning, the chances of it surviving to the end of the plan is like. Nothing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I guess just wanting to tie this back into the whole like student aspect. Um, so I know that you took your first gap year and now you're going into taking your second one. Um, <laughs> I know like there, there's kind of like mixed reviews about taking a gap year or not taking a gap year, but 
How do you think that get, uh, gap year affected you? And what do you say to the idea of just taking a gap year to pursue whatever it is? Yeah, gap years for me have been like really utilitarian. So the first one I took was because I auditioned to 10 conservatories and got into none. Mm-hmm. I was eight the first year. So I was recovering from a playing injury in my face. I was like in rehabilitation for six months and then had to do all the auditions. So. I didn't get into any of the schools, and then I just found myself in a gap year. I was like, yes, this is happening. Um, I refused at that time to go to the schools in my area because I just wanted to like get the hell out of Dodge. And um, so what I did was I spent that year practicing and traveling to take lessons with people, one of which I now teach her up here. And um, yeah, it was really uneventful. They're kind of like, like I said, mine wasn't the typical go study abroad thing. Like I met someone that went to 16 countries in like the first six months of their gap year and like had a travel partner, no budget. It's like full nomad lifestyle. Like that was not mine. Like I spent a lot of time in my bedroom, like playing trombone and thinking that I was bored. <laughs> and one of those things that like, the first one I think was like in a general sense, the gap year itself as a whole was pretty inconsequential. But there were a few, like, pivotal things that happened around it that made it one of those things that, like, completely changed my life. Mm-hmm. Although 90% of the time was, like, me chilling in my bedroom, bored, and playing trombone and watching YouTube videos, like, that 10% more stuff actually happened is, like, responsible for every change that's now taken a full form in my life. And as far as this year, I mean, basically, this wasn't, like, a... A lot of people don't recommend it because typically people can be like, I'm just gonna take a gap year and like peace out and like that plan. (laughs) But um, for me, I was very meticulous about this one. So I had like several meetings with um, trombonists, like professional trombonists, so like people in New York Phil, people at the Met, people like freelancers in the New York area, Mm -hmm. several graduates of Juilliard. And I was basically asking them like what the behavior of education and um, professional orchestras are in classical music because I didn't know if there was like some sort of elitist like oh well, he left school and came back so he's not as committed so we're not going to hire him or stuff like that I didn't know if any of that existed. and it turns out it doesn't um, as long as you didn't like leave school and like live under a rock for six years doing then come back like right. as long as you were left for a reason they don't they don't mind as long as you can play as well. So I basically had a, a meeting with every teacher that I could remember to make a meeting with. And then after learning as much as I could about like all of that from them, I had the final meeting with um, with my studio teacher who is Colin Williams, who's the associate principal at the New York Philharmonic. Mm-hmm. And um, I was terrified. I was like literally shaking as I went in to tell this guy because he's the entire reason why I'm up here. Like he took me under his wing at the school in New Jersey that I didn't know existed. Like when audition got the in state waiver, like he is why I'm here. So it was a little terrifying to go into and be like, hey, by the way, um, I'm not going to be here next year to my job out. <laughs> right. He ended up being awesome. Like he was fully in support of it. In fact, he said, it sounds like something you have to do. Um, I, I think he'd been watching from afar, like all of the sort of like infantile growth of the company and throughout the year. And like, 
company being me going to coding events, trying to find a developer, like me reading different books or me constantly editing in the meantime, like in between classes and stuff. And uh, he was like, I mean, if you don't do this, you're just going to be pissed off sometime later in your life that you didn't. So like, right. kind of have to, like, I know you as a person. And so with that meeting was like, I guess I'm taking another gap because what the way my university works is like you get one year for free. So if I take this gap year and come back and like Sprackle flames out in October, um, then I'll be able to come back as if I was stepping into this next semester. Got it. So it's like, if I, it was one of those things that's like, it's inconsequential academically. So I'm just gonna take it. And that way I have a full year to flush out the app and start up, and if it works by the end of it, I'll know that I can drop out justified. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I found out that like, I can re-audition into like a much more rigorous conservatory later as like a 25 year old freshman, as long as my audition is really strong. And that was the main thing I was concerned about. Right. Like, if I leave this now, am I leaving it forever or will they let me back in? Right. Because ultimately the roadmap for a startup, like, or at least for this one, is like five, seven, maybe 10 years, but really not more than that. I can't imagine an action sport app startup being like yeah. life's endeavor. Um, so ultimately, I anticipate I'll be returning to music. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely, like, for myself, even I've been talking to a bunch of people, and I'm like, sometimes I feel like the things that I learn in class aren't solely applicable to the outside world. But again, I guess the whole reason bringing it back to this podcast is there's so many cool ways nowadays where you can learn outside of your traditional academic environment. And like, you never know what lessons you'll learn, whether it's like personal development or actual hard set skills from things that you're taking on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, no, the, the things I learned in the past year of college were like not... The thing I do like about music, though, I think one of the reasons I was so attracted to it is because it's like one of the last few standing academic meritocracies. Like, you go to music conservatory, right? uh, music conservatory, because like you actually need to learn everything that you will in music conservatory to like survive as a musician, unless right. you're God Himself playing an instrument. <laughs> There's some people that like audition into the Philadelphia Orchestra when they're up, like junior at Juilliard or, or freshman at Juilliard. That was when Jim Marquis did it. But like mostly you kind of have to go through these programs. Right. And so that's why I like music schools because like 90% of your classes are about it. And mm -hmm. it's that foundation for you. Yeah. Whereas other things like, I don't know, I couldn't imagine going to college for like normal <laughs> I just couldn't like, <laughs> I can imagine music, I can imagine. And it's really weird because like, I was really into like conceptual, at least like physics in high school mm -hmm. for like a split second that I was gonna go an engineering path. Right. But I, I cannot, and like going through an undergrad program for engineering and like all the prerequisites and like random ass yeah. I have a friend that's like double majoring in pre-med. I think he's in like biology and physics is his double major or something. Mm -hmm. And he's taking a scuba diving class right now because like it has to fill a credit. So like, <laughs> yeah. it's like, stuff like that. Like, I mean, a scuba diving class sounds cool, but like cool. what kind of stuff does he have to take? Right. Um, yeah, it's, I, I have a weird relationship with 
academia because I'm not one of those people that's like, screw college. I just know that I, I suck at it personally. So I'm not but like other people. And I guess just uh, one final question. If you were to, if you're going to reflect on your past one, two years with all the stuff that you've been doing, is there anything that you would change about it or things that you might have regretted that you wish you could have done? Hmm. Um, past one year, I'd probably say no. In the past one year, it's, it's one of those things, like if I could go into the past and give myself specific answers to things, like that'd be super convenient. But I don't, I'm particularly unhappy with any of my like decisions. But the past two years, I could have done more on the gap year. Like I feel like I, I didn't do enough on that. And I definitely could have like saved up more in that gap year. Mm-hmm. Because like there was a lot of time I was doing nothing. Um, and I thought of like doing price arbitrage stuff for like an Alibaba store or just like making some past play machine to like build up stuff but at the same time i didn't know i'd be looking at a startup in the future (laughs) yeah absolutely (laughs) i don't know i think i'm pretty satisfied with my past two years yeah i mean definitely like i feel like you were able to do the things that you're passionate about so it wasn't like you were necessarily chasing after some dream goal it's like you were actually doing things that you loved and wanted to do from the get-go yeah i've been sort of like a just you can ask any of my relatives or like friends when I was a kid, like I just don't do things that I don't want to. Like right. they get me to it, I just don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely like a smart personal skill to really understand your own strengths and weaknesses and kind of where you thrive in. And I mean, I feel like that's something that you found for yourself and moving forward, hopefully Sprackle will take off once you guys do launch beta and all of that, but time will tell. But (laughs) yeah, Um, thank you so much for being willing to be a part of my podcast series. Hopefully, I guess you were able to get some self-reflection out of it as well. And hopefully other people that will hear this, they'll be able to relate and connect with different things. And maybe if you are interested in videography and all of that you can learn more about koi i'll link his youtube his instagram and his linkedin on there um super cool dude and feel free to connect with him and check out his stuff as well but thank you so much for joining me today koi thank you it was was a pleasure being here it's nice to get to know you more as well (laughs) thank you (laughs)